And now, with sound investing, here's Paul Merriman. I'm going to have some fun today, at least fun for me. I'm going to read some portions of Larry Swedrow's uh, updated The Incredible Shrinking Alpha, How to Be a Successful Investor Without Picking Winners. Uh, Larry is uh, uh, truly one of the uh, top 10 truth tellers that uh, that I recognize as as, as knowing so much, more than almost anybody I know about the history of investing. And, uh, and so I'm going to pick on some pieces that I hope will be meaningful lessons. And as I address them, it will be because he answers questions that I commonly get uh, from listeners and, and viewers. So I'll be doing that in just a second. But first, I want to talk about something that's coming up. I got, a, I got an email from Russell, and Russell said, I know you have done quite a bit of work looking at the four-fund combo versus the ultimate buy and hold strategies. I'm wondering if you've ever done any backtesting of these portfolios against any of Rick Ferry's core four model portfolios. Well, it turns out that uh, literally days before that, uh, uh, I had decided to do a presentation for AAII on September 23rd. And uh, you can't sign up for it yet, but I just wanted you to have a chance to mark your calendar. It will be at 5.30 p.m., and that's p.m. Pacific time. And the topic is going to be, which is the best one, two, three, and four fun strategy? Now, to be fair... We're not looking at a hundred of them, but we are looking at 10 different strategies. I say we. Uh, Daryl Balls has done a terrific job of, of uh, putting together a really a nice comparison of the work of Rick Ferry, the Bogleheads, uh, uh, and, uh, and, and our four-fund combo, of course, the Trev H., but they're Warren Buffett, John Bogle. And the great part about it for me is I'll be able to show you the numbers, the tables, because it will be a Zoom presentation. And uh, uh, while it is designed for AAII members, uh, the good news is they will allow other people to come uh, uh, watch the presentation. So, I hope you're there. Uh, I'm sure it's going to raise lots of questions, uh, and and I suspect that I'll answer those in a separate, uh, a separate podcast. Uh, not, uh, I only get an hour to present, and then 15 minutes for questions. So, uh, I'm I'm not going to get to them all. And uh, as far as answering those questions, when it is time to do that, I'm going to make sure that uh, uh, Daryl uh, is available to, uh, to answer them along with me. Anyhow, I'm very excited about it. I think it'll be, it'll be interesting to see the difference in returns. And we're doing it in a way that I think is fair. Because um, 
When I originally did the ultimate buy and hold strategy, that must have been 15, 20 years ago, the way we showed it was with a portfolio that was 60% equities and 40% fixed income. And uh, the reason we did that was to show that with a 60-40 equity fixed income, 60% equity, that over a long period of time, the return was virtually the same as the S&P 500. And think I, I think it was even a little better. The problem is, is people thought that I was making the point that a 60-40 equity fixed income portfolio is itself the ultimate combination. And it certainly isn't. And so later, some years later, instead of showing 60-40, we went to the all equity portfolio and could compare it to the S&P 500 as an all equity position. Uh, And then we could show the implications of putting together different amounts of fixed income so that very conservative people could see the ultimate buy and hold with a lot of fixed income. Moderate could be some fixed income. And of course, aggressive might be no uh, fixed income. But it was a to level the playing field, to really show the work of, for example, Rick Ferry's Core 4. It's a fine portfolio, but every one of his, I think he's got four different uh, uh, levels of risk. Each one has some fixed income. I want to compare these strategies without any fixed income because that's something you could add uh, depending upon your your taste for for uh, for risk uh, now whether we'll we're not going to be able to show a fine tuning table for every combination but we'll show enough so that you'll get an idea of how you might think about uh, about evaluating how good any of these portfolios would be so you'll be able to see them as an all equity position and then I'll show enough tables that will give you an idea of uh, what what's likely to happen to the return if you add fixed income. And of course, we'll be showing the, let's see, we're not going back to 1970. No, I think we do go back to 1970 in these studies. And, uh, and of course, we're all well aware that that the last 50 years of returns and equities will not look like the next, and nor will they with fixed income. So uh, there's no guarantees coming out of this study, but it is a great way, I think, to compare these different very simple strategies. And by the way, this might be a good opportunity to get your kids to watch. Uh, maybe you've been trying to get them to start using some of these uh, more broadly diversified portfolios. That that uh, that might be a good introduction to a very uh, small part of the whole process and a very simple uh, a part of the process and a nice way to to show how all of these strategies work just fine, depending on what your definition of fine is. But of course, somebody's going to win. I'm not even sure who it's going to be. So I hope you'll join us uh, at the AAII, and we'll have 
by next week. I'm sure we'll have all the information on being able to sign up for that. So let's talk about what's going on here today. My wife and I took four days off and went down to Cannon Beach. We go to Cannon Beach every year for a few days. Absolutely love it. And what even made it, uh, well, more fun was we had family and friends that uh, came by, socially distanced, of course. And uh, and also I had some time uh, to, uh, to read uh, Larry Swedro's uh, updated The Incredible Shrinking Alpha. So uh, I'm going to give you just a, a few short chapters. I'll make some comments that I think will hopefully encourage you to read the book, uh, particularly those of you who are uh, into factor investing. Uh, uh, Larry is one of the most knowledgeable in, 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 that, in that area. But I want to start with uh, Appendix E. And the title is, For Actively Managed Funds, How Long a Track Record is Enough? This is the question that I have dealt with for the last 40-plus years. And the, and the reason it comes up is because um, the industry, the, the mutual fund industry, has historically used a relatively few years of performance uh, to make the case for one of their hot managers. And, uh, and of course, most of us know Fidelity Magellan and Peter Lynch and, and, and what an all-star manager he was. Uh, and uh, we certainly know Warren Buffett and what an all-star manager he has been. But, uh, uh, the, the the challenge is, is there really isn't any evidence to be able to tell whether that hot hand uh, can be played again, uh, and 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 so I am still, I am still the believer that the best opportunity to purchase the past, if if there's any opportunity all at all, is to do it through. An index fund, and just listen for a few minutes to the uh, to these uh, a handful of stories about uh, people with a hot hand. Whenever the evidence on the failure of active management to persistently outperform is presented, the typical response from skeptics goes something like, "Who cares about the average fund?" I only invest in funds with great long-term track records. The argument continues along these lines. While a short-term record of beating the market might be luck, certainly a long-term record must be skill-based. The problem with this line of thinking is that the studies on this subject have found no persistent outperformance beyond the randomly expected the past is not prologue when it comes to mutual fund returns. In other words, given the huge number of active managers trying to beat the market, the odds are that some of them will randomly outperform even over long time frames. The following four examples demonstrate that even long 
long-term track records of outperformance don't provide insight into future performance. The 44 Wall Street Fund. Most investors would be surprised to learn that Peter Lynch and the mutual fund he ran was not the top-ranked fund of the 1970s. Thanks to its now long-forgotten manager, David Baker, the 44 Wall Street Fund generated even greater returns than Lynch's Magellan Fund, making it the top-performing diversified U.S. stock fund of the decade. Surely, 10 years of achieving the best performance in an entire industry could not be the result of pure luck. Or could it? How were investors rewarded for believing that past performance of active managers is prologue? In the succeeding decade of the 1980s, while the S&P 500 index returned 17.6% per year, each dollar invested grew to more than $5, the 44 Wall Street Fund ranked as the single worst-performing fund of the decade, losing 73%. Each $1 invested turned into just $0.27. The fund did so poorly that it was merged into the Cumberland Growth Fund in April of 1993, which was then merged into the Matterhorn Growth Fund in April 1996. We next consider the case of a fund that accomplished what even Peter Lynch never did, beat the S&P 500 index for 11 years in a row. But before we leave the 44 Wall Street Fund story, I think it's interesting to note that according to the SPIVA study that Standard & Poor's uh, does every uh, six months, uh, what it shows is that uh, over a 15-year period, about half or more than half of the funds that, w- that were available 15 years ago have either been closed or, or merged away in order to get rid of, a, a general, in almost every case, a, a bad performance. So, so this is pretty common. Uh, but it is pretty remarkable that something that was as hot as 44 Wall uh, could, in fact, uh, turn so cold. I will also add that it's fascinating that years later, there were just you know virtually, let's say, 8 or 10 or $12 million left in the fund. People either who had forgotten they even owned it or... We're sitting there waiting to break even, waiting for Peter Baker to be hot again. All right, next next uh, fund that uh, Larry discusses, the Lindner Large Cap Fund. For each of the 11 years, 1974 through 1984, the Lindner Large Cap Fund outperformed the S&P 500 index. However, over the next 18 years, The S&P 500 returned 12.6% per year, while the Lindner Large Cap Fund returned just 4.1%, an underperformance 
of 8.5 percentage points per year. The lender was finally put out of its misery when it was purchased by the Hennessy Funds in October uh, 2003 and eventually merged into the Hennessy Total Return Fund. Next up is the case of Bill Miller, who managed to beat the S&P 500 index for 15 years in a row. Surely that longest streak of excellence can be relied on to continue. The Leg Mason Value Trust Fund. By the end of 2005, Bill Miller's streak of outperforming the S&P 500 had reached 15 consecutive years. That streak was broken in 2006 when the fund underperformed the S&P 500 by about 10 percentage points. His 2007 performance was even worse, underperforming the S&P 500 index by about 12 percentage points. And 2008 was even more miserable as the fund underperformed that benchmark by about 18 percentage points. Miller finally reversed that performance in 2009 when his fund beat the S&P 500 by about 14 percentage points. Let me just insert, and you can imagine, it felt like a turnaround. Something's coming. Well, unfortunately, continuing on, the fund underperformed the S&P 500 in 2010 by more than 8 percentage points. Uh, It again underperformed in 2011 by 6 percentage points, in new, in 2012, the reins of the fund were handed over to a new manager. There is one last case to present, although it is not about a mutual fund. It is the tale about relying on the past performance of active managers. The Tiger Fund. The Tiger Fund Hedge Fund was formed in 1980 by the legendary Julian Robertson with $10 million in capital. The fund had a remarkable run, averaging returns of more than 30% per year for its first 18 years. By 1998, it had in excess of $22 billion under management, the vast majority coming from new investments. Over the next two years, however, the Tiger Fund scrambled badly, losing more than $10 billion. The fund closed its doors in March 2000. The irony is that while the fund still shows a return of 25% over its lifetime, it is estimated that investors in the fund may have actually lost money. The reason is that most of the money came in late after the great returns had already been earned. Now let me add something to that, uh, that uh, appendix piece. Um, we also have to realize that the same kind of a problem uh, happens in the index arena. 
Uh, we've talked about it many times, how the S&P 500 from 1975 to 1999 compounded at over 17%. An amazing track record that would make uh, anybody... Uh, uh, another Peter Lynch or or uh, Bill Miller or Baker. Um, but then the following 20 years, while it has had some good years, it's had enough bad years because of the market, not because of a manager, because of a market. And uh, that uh, uh, that the compound rate of return from 2000 to 2019 was about 6% rather than about 17 So this problem of counting too much on any one manager or any one asset class uh, can be a mistake. It is uh, not uncomfortable for me to recommend that a newborn child have uh, some money put away maybe $365 a year for 10 or 20 years, and that you use an asset class that has a long history of premium. It's not that you're expecting amazing returns from small cap value. It is that you are expecting a premium over the S&P 500. That doesn't mean the S&P 500 is likely to be a mistake for the long term. You should do just fine there. But you should do better with small cap value. But it is this reason that a manager can fail to perform as expected, uh, and a an index can fail to perform as expected. And at age 76, I don't want to place everything uh, on, on red or black. I don't want to depend on one asset class. In hindsight, it's easy for me to know that, that uh, uh, through the end of... Uh, of July, that the hedge fund that I own, and it's it is about ten percent of our portfolio, uh, is up over twelve percent. Well, I mean, why don't I have more money there if it's such a hot performer? Well, because there are times it's a very poor performer, or not very actually. I think the worst year it ever had, calendar year, was a loss of 34 or 35%. So that's even better than the S&P 500. But it doesn't change that I, at my age, should not have too much tied up in any one manager, any one asset class. And uh, they can all underperform. And just a, a, a quick comment uh, in, in, uh, in the uh, Appendix A... Uh, he does a, a nice job of addressing the question of uh, the returns that you should expect from passive investing. And the, the question is, does indexing slash passive investing get you average returns? Now, this was always one of the, the claims of Wall Street or question they would ask, do you Want to get average returns? I mean, that's that's what a, a, an index is likely to give you is just the average return of all of those companies. It was a 
great sales pitch, very, very misleading. But, but you have to understand that that Wall Street was bleeding and bleeding money because indexing was taking money uh, away from the industry. Uh, and, and, and in fact, uh, let me just read a, another part of this same part of the index. Uh, it says, uh, philosopher Arthur Schopenhauer said that all great ideas go through three stages. In the first stage, they are ridiculed. In the second stage, they are strongly opposed. In the third stage, they are considered to be self-evident. This was certainly the case for Bogle's experiment, referring to John Bogle and Vanguard. When it was launched, his index fund was heavily derided by the mutual fund industry. The fund was even described as un-American, and it inspired a widely circulated poster showing Uncle Sam calling on the world to, quote, help stamp out index funds, end quote. The fund was lampooned as Bogle's folly. Fidelity's chairman, Edward Johnson, assured the world that the company had no intention of following Bogle into index funds when he stated, quote, I can't believe that the great mass of investors are going to be satisfied with receiving just average returns. The name of the game is to be the best. Another fund manager, National Securities and Research Corp, categorically rejected the idea of settling for average. Quote, who wants to be operated on by an average surgeon, close quote, they asked. So he goes on then to, 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 to talk about the SPIVA numbers, and, uh, and, and to note that very, a very low percentage of managers, active managers, who are trying to be very American and beat the market, uh, that very few people can do it. But he does then close this part of, of the book talking about the actual returns for the 20 years uh, ending December uh, two thousand. 19. And he shows the ranking of each of the individual domestic and uh, uh, international index funds at Vanguard and at uh, DFA. Uh, DFA being the family of funds that, that uh, are, are only available through investment advisors. Uh, but they do have uh, ETFs coming that will be available. Maybe they're already out and I don't know it, but they're coming. Uh, so the public will be able to to buy some of these uh, strategies through ETFs. But what he did find was, I'm talking about Larry Swedrow, that for the Vanguard Index Funds, the average 20-year ranking was the 21st Percentile. In other words, approximately eighty percent, seventy-nine percent of of the managers underperformed the Vanguard index funds after expenses. The benchmark does not carry any expenses. So, 
it is in theory for a for an index it's not possible to beat the benchmark because the 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 fund is going to have expenses now there are cases there are ways that they actually can beat the index but by a very small amount uh, then a DFA uh, the average percentile ranking was 15. Uh, so that meant that they were in the top 15% uh, with their index funds. And Swedro's point is, and it is certainly obvious, that index funds do not perform average returns. And that's, and that's because actively managed funds carry all of the expenses of trying to beat the market, having to pay a lot of money for a manager, having to pay the cost of buying and selling, uh, having to pay uh, the, the cost to outsiders for research, whatever. All of those things are taken out of the pocket of the investor. With the index fund, that money is left in the pocket, less a smaller and smaller and smaller uh, fee these days. And as we all know, in some cases, actually, there is no operating expense. There's another piece in the appendix uh, that I thought was interesting. Uh, the performance of active managers in bear markets. Uh, a lot of, I can see why it would be natural for somebody to believe that an active manager, because they have the ability to get out of the market and to go to cash, the active manager should theoretically be able to do better. Now, the fact is, is most active managers do not even pretend to manage market risk. They do not pretend to suggest that they are going to try to protect you from a bear market. Their job is to be in companies that perform, have superior performance uh, through the, the bears and the bulls and back to the bears and back to the bulls. It's over the long term that they're investing. In fact, they would look to a bear market to buy more of the things they own rather than to get rid of them because they they're in the portfolio because they think they're great companies. And uh, let me just give you a small part of this uh, of this the write up here on this question about performance by active managers. Uh, they talk about a study that Vanguard did, but it says Vanguard concluded we find little evidence to support the purported benefits of active management during periods of market stress. Vanguard's conclusion is confirmed by Standard & Poor's finding in its 2008 indices versus active SPIVA scorecard. Talked about that earlier. Every six months they, they build the scorecard. Standard & Poor's concluded, quote, the belief that bear markets favor active management is a myth. A majority of active funds in eight of the nine domestic equity style boxes were outperformed by indexes in the negative markets of 19, I'm sorry, of 2008. The bear market of 2000 to 2002 showed similar outperformance comes close quote
So this idea that there is, uh, uh, there should be an expectation that with active management, you do better in a bear market, uh, it is fake news. And it is something that is, has been propagated by the, by Wall Street because they're always looking for a, a, a way to, to support the way they make their money. And I want to share one more part of the book. Uh, it's, uh, he talks in here about one of the things, a, num a number of things you can do to be a successful investor. One of them is very obvious from everything you've learned, I'm sure. And uh, it's, it's number five, stay disciplined. He starts with a quote from Warren Buffett. Success in investing doesn't correlate with IQ. Once you have ordinary intelligence, what you need is the temperament to control the urges that get other people in trouble investing. And that was a quote from a Business Week uh, uh, article in June 25, on June 25, 1999. But here's what Larry goes on to say, and I'll I'll read a, a part of this. I this this whole this whole section about about how to to you know to to come out ahead in the long run uh, are things that I hope that you would uh, immediately buy into, like low expenses and broad diversification. Things you've heard time or two here, I know. But he says one of the most common mistakes investors make, and one that can cause the most damage. And by the way, that's that's what I'm that's what I'm looking for. What are the things that cause the most damage? I'm talking about uh, in this uh, book we're working on right now about the twelve million dollar decisions. What we believe is, you come to a fork in the road. There's a decision you're going to make. You go one way, it's my belief that you're going to be damaged in the return you could have had. You're, you're going to be exposed to something that is more harmful than helpful. I want you to go the way that is likely to be more helpful. Uh, to repeat, one of the most common mistakes investors make and one that can cause the most damage is that when it comes to evaluating investments and investment strategies, most think that three years is a long time, five years a very long time, and ten years an eternity. In fact, financial economists know that ten years can be nothing more than noise. Adding to the problem is that recency bias leads many to abandon even well-thought-out plans. Which is why temperament the ability to stay disciplined and ignore the noise of the maker trumps intelligence when it comes to being a successful investor. In fact, investing is that rare field where someone with no experience can outperform those with the strongest technical backgrounds. That is a huge comment. For for investors who don't know very much and don't think they'll ever be able to know enough, what Larry would say or or 
almost all of the academics would say it's the people who know a lot who are more likely to get in trouble than somebody who gets the basics, puts it to work, and keeps it to work. In fact, part of the of the book is devoted, and I just think it's 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 great fun reading about the history of of professional managers and how they treat a stock that has been a winner for them in the past and how they treat a stock that has been a loser for them in the past. They struggle with the same emotional hurdles that 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 the amateurs do. I'm going on with what Larry has to say. With this knowledge, we still need to answer the question. If three, five, or ten years is not enough time to wait for a strategy to work, how long should you wait? Here's the way to think about the problem. First, while most think about investing in terms of risk, it's actually closer to uncertainty. The difference between that with risk, we know the odds, or at least can estimate them with a high degree of confidence, while with uncertainty, this is not the case. Second, while it is true that the longer the investment horizon, the lower the likelihood that risky investments will underperform riskless treasury bills, no matter how long the investment horizon, there must be the possibility that any investment strategy will underperform. For example, there have been three periods, 1929 to 1943, 1966 to 1982, and 2000 to 2012, of at least 13 years over which the S&P 500 index underperformed riskless one-month treasury bills. Now, I even had to sit up and take notice of that one. I didn't know that. If such periods did not exist, there would be no risk for long-term investors, and there should be no other kind, and no excess return. And sadly, there are no crystal balls. Thus, the best we can do is to put the odds in our favor. I hope this isn't depressing. But I can tell you, when I, when I call Larry Swedrow a truth teller, it's this kind of honesty and directness that investors need to understand. Third, the best way to put the odds in our favor is to diversify across many unique sources of risk, diversifying across the systematic risk involved in any investment strategy. Parens asset class slash factor, close parens. Avoiding the risk of having too many eggs in one undiversified basket. That brings us to the question, how do you gain confidence that an investment strategy is likely to deliver an expected return? Without such confidence, the inevitable bad periods will lead you to abandon the strategy. We first provided the answer in our 
2016 book, Your Complete Guide to Factor-Based Investing. To have confidence in a strategy and the faith to adhere to it even after 10 or more years of underperformance, you must be convinced there is enough evidence that the premium has the following characteristics. Here we go, five things. Persistent across a long period of time and across different economic regimes. Pervasive across industries, countries, regions, and even asset classes. Robust to various definitions. Implementable. And then parens survives all costs. Intuitive, risk-based, or behavioral-based explanations for why you believe it should continue to exist. If an investment strategy can meet all of the above criteria, then even after long periods of underperformance, the only reason you should consider abandoning the strategy, and boy, this is a question I get from you guys all the time, when do we know enough is enough? All right, let me start from the top there. If an investment strategy can meet all of the above criteria, then even after long periods of underperformance, the only reason you should consider abandoning the strategy is if there is sufficient evidence that convinces you that the strategy could no longer pass those tests. With that in mind, and understanding that even good investment strategies can cease to work if sufficient cash flows into them to drive prices to a level that eliminates the expected premium, we can take a look at two investment strategies that as of 2020 had underperformed for 10 years, value and emerging markets. We hope that doing so highlights for you the importance of staying disciplined and provides examples of an analytical approach that can give you the faith to do so. Snuck in that word faith. You heard that, didn't you? Because at the end of the day, because there is no proof, there is no guarantee, whatever faith means to you, uh, that is a, a, a lot of what this process is about. Trust. What do we trust? What do we believe in? And then he goes on to go through the discussion of value and uh, emerging markets, uh, talking about uh, the persistence, the pervasiveness, the robustness, the imp implementable and the intuitive risk-based, behavioral-based explanations for why that premium should continue. And I know uh, that those of you who really want to dig into the value premium uh, will want to read this book because it, 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 it does a terrific job of separating kind of the myths from reality. And hopefully will help those of you 
who have emerging markets, who have U.S. and international value, larger, small value. They're important parts of my portfolio. I, I think you'll find it helpful to be able to dig deeper. And I want to finish with uh, a question I get once a week, maybe more often. <laughs> what if everyone indexed? Here's what Larry has to say. To begin to answer the question, it is important to understand that we are a long way from that happening. Today, about half of assets in publicly held mutual funds and ETFs are invested in structured strategies. Uh, that's that's an, an index fund. In addition, there will always be some trading activity from the exercise of stock options, estates, mergers, and acquisitions, etc. With that in mind, let us address the issue of the likelihood of active managers either gaining or losing an advantage as the trend toward passive management marches on. We begin by addressing the issue of information efficiency. The proponents of active management argue that with less active management activity, there will be fewer professionals researching and recommending securities, making it easier to gain a competitive advantage. This is the same argument they have been making for decades about those inefficient small cap and emerging markets. Unfortunately, their underperformance against proper benchmarks has, ju just, has been just as great in these asset classes. For example, the S&P Dow Jones mid-year 2019 SPIVA, that's the active versus passive, scorecard showed that over the 15-year period ending June 2019, 90.3% of all actively managed small-cap funds and 94.3% of actively managed emerging market funds underperformed their benchmark index, even worse than the 87.8% of domestic fund managers who did so. The explanation for why active managers in emerging markets have done so poorly is that less efficient markets are characterized by lower trading volumes resulting in less liquidity and greater trading costs. As more investors move to passive strategies, it may have been logical to conclude that trading activity would decline. Yet, despite the shift to passive management by both individuals and institutions, trading volumes have not declined and in fact have set new records as the remaining active participants become more active. Think of all those high-frequency traders. However, if investors shifting to passive management cause trading activity to fall, then liquidity would decline and trading costs would rise. 
This increase in trading costs would raise the already substantial hurdle that active managers have to overcome. Based on the evidence we have from the inefficient small cap and emerging markets, any information advantage gained by a lessening of competition would be offset by an increase in trading costs. Remember that the costs of implementing an active strategy must be small enough that market inefficiencies can be profitably exploited after expenses. In other words, the math is irrefutable. Passive investing doesn't win because active managers are dumb. And as John Bogle points out with his cost matters hypotheses, you don't need the markets to be efficient for passive investing to be the winning strategy. It is simple math. It is the greater cost of active management that are the cause of their underperformance. There is another interesting conclusion that can be drawn about the trend toward passive investing. Remember that for active managers to win, they must exploit the mistakes of others. It seems likely that those abandoning active management in favor of passive strategies are investors that have had poor experience with active investing. The reason this seems logical is that it doesn't seem likely that an individual would abandon a winning strategy. The only other logical explanation we can come up with is that an individual simply recognized that they were lucky. That conclusion would be inconsistent with behavioral studies that all show individuals tend to take credit for their success as skill-based and attributed, attribute uh, failures to bad luck. Thus, it seems logical to conclude that the remaining players are likely to the, be the ones with the most skill. Therefore, we can conclude that as the less skilled investors abandon active strategies, the remaining competition on average is likely to get tougher and tougher. As we explained in Chapter 2, as the trend to passive investing marches on, there will be fewer and fewer victims to exploit, leaving the remaining active managers to trade against themselves. And that is a game that in aggregate they cannot win. In a commentary published in February 2017, issue of the Journal of Investing, Brad Cornell offered the following observation, quote, If the active investor pool has been whittled down to the most sophisticated active managers, what active manager would be on the other side of the trade? And I move to the uh, Cornell's conclusion at the end of this, uh, uh, of this particular chapter. Cornell concluded, The bottom line is that as passive investing becomes more common, if it is not already true today, it will be issuers, issuers, the people who issue stock uh, to help 
build a company, you know, and um, IPOs, initial public offerings, or secondary issues, raising additional money for the corporations. But it will be issuers, not active investors, that play the central role in maintaining the equilibrium level of market efficiency. The conclusion we hope you draw is that while the market for alpha, and alpha is a a premium, a higher premium for risk taken, can become, the conclusion we hope you draw is that while the market for alpha can become overgrazed in terms of being the prudent strategy, indexing and passive investing in general cannot become overgrazed because costs matter. I know that many of you, uh, your interest in investing is limited to to making sure you get the 12 things that, that, that we're after you doing right. The expenses, the taxes, the diversification, the asset class exposure, the the, the fixed income appropriately used, all those things that make investing work in the long term. But for those who really want to dig in and understand the ins, the ins and outs of value and large and small and emerging markets, I'll tell you, you will, you will really get a lot out of uh, uh, Larry's new book. And, uh, uh, and and I hope you believe, as I do, that this is a guy you can trust has done his homework. I often talk about the circle of knowledge, all investment knowledge. They're all that there is to know. I mean, it's, it's millions of bits of information that you could know about investing. And then maybe you take it, some go down to a thousand, some go down to a hundred. Some of you may only want 12. But for those who want to fill more of that circle of investment knowledge up, Larry Swedro is a great guy to read. And this is his latest. And uh, I'm not just being lazy. I mean, I could have tried to paraphrase what he said. But he says it's so much better. Thanks for listening, and be sure and mark that calendar for September 23rd, 5.30 p.m. Pacific Time. Hope to see you there. That was Paul Merriman with Sound Investing. Sound Investing, soundinvesting.com, and paulmerriman.com are produced and exclusively owned by Paul Merriman, who is solely responsible for their content. For more information, free articles, mutual fund recommendations, and more, visit paulmerriman.com.